President Trump has been publicly spatting with the Republican senator from Tennessee, Bob Corker, for quite some time. This week, Trump has tweeted calling Corker a lightweight senator and saying he couldn't get elected dog catcher. In the hallways of the Capitol building, Corker told reporters, And I think that the worst of it is going to be just the whole debasing, if you will, of our nation. Um, I think that'll be the contribution that, that hurts our nation most. You think the president's debasing the nation? Uh, I don't think there's any question, but that's the case, just in the way that he conducts himself and, and goes to such a low level. Uh, I just, uh, I do, but, but look, I mean... Corker already announced his retirement and has therefore been unconstrained by potential electoral consequences of arguing with Trump. But then, on Tuesday, another GOP senator spoke out against the president. Jeff Flake, the Republican senator from Arizona, announced that he would not be seeking re-election in 2018. In his announcement, though, he went much further. The personal attacks, the threats against principles, freedoms and institution, the flagrant disregard for truth and decency, the reckless provocations, most often for the pettiest and most personal reasons, reasons having nothing whatsoever to do with the fortunes of the people that we have been elected to serve. None of these appalling features of our current politics should ever be regarded as normal. This level of public criticism from members of Congress about a president in their own party seems unusual, if not unprecedented. So is it? For that matter, have we seen presidents attempt to push out lawmakers who disagree with them regardless of party? And if more GOP lawmakers resign, who will replace them in 2018? Republicans who lean nationalist and don't oppose Trump or Democrats? This is Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Later in the show, we'll talk to Dr. Lawrence Jerdom about President Franklin Roosevelt's attempts to replace conservative Democrats who disagreed with some of his approach to governing. But first, we've got congressional reporter Sean Sullivan back on the show. All right, Sean, let's start with Jeff Flake's speech from the other day. Though he didn't mention Trump by name, many of his comments were somewhat shocking to hear from a Republican about a president of his own party. You're on Capitol Hill every day. Is it common for GOP lawmakers to speak about a president like this? Not at all. It was striking on many levels to hear the critique Jeff Flake offered on the floor of the Senate of the president. He could not have been clearer about the problems he has with the president's political style, the problems he has with some of the positions and some of the rhetoric Trump has put out there. But we don't hear a lot of Republicans say stuff like this. Now, privately, a lot of Republican lawmakers and aides would acknowledge that they don't disagree with what Jeff Flake said. The thing is, very, very few, if any, are willing to actually say that publicly. And why are they unwilling to say that publicly? Well, because they're afraid of alienating both the president and his political base. Right now, the president remains very, very popular among the conservative base that elected him president, even though we see a lot of these national polls that say Trump's popularity is slipping, Trump's approval rating is going down. When you go to these conservative areas, these conservative states where a lot of these lawmakers are from, Trump is gold. They still show up to these rallies. They still show up to these speeches. 
and they think he's really, really doing a good job, and they blame Congress and they blame Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan for the problems that we've seen in this first few months here. So if you are a Republican lawmaker and you want to run for re-election, you have to really think twice about saying something bad about Trump, because if you do, there's a very good chance that he and many of his supporters will fiercely criticize you, and there's a very good chance that that means that your support in the Republican Party, whether it's in your state or your congressional district, uh, could erode sharply. Yeah, I want to get a little bit more into that in a second. But first, let's talk about the history between Jeff Flake and President Trump. Has Flake supported Trump in the past? Did he support him in 2016? This is not a surprise. It wasn't as if he came out and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, criticized President Trump. He was critical of him during the campaign. He just wrote a book where he laid this stuff out and essentially offered this argument for why he cannot support this president and the kind of politics that he embraces. So this is not a surprise. This is somebody who has been a pretty vocal critic of the president. But what's new and what's interesting and notable about what we heard from Flake is that we thought, and I think a lot of Republicans in Washington thought, that he was going to run for re-election, that this was going to be a test case for whether somebody who has criticized Trump so sharply could be viable on the campaign trail. And by repeating his criticism in a speech where he said he wasn't going to run, we now know that that's not going to happen anymore. Right. So this is really interesting. It's not just Flake. It's also Senator Bob Corker, who also plans to retire and not run for re-election. They've both spoken out very publicly against Trump. But a point that many people have raised about Flake is that he wasn't performing very well in the polls. He had something like an 18 percent approval rating in his home state of Arizona. So a loss may have been inevitable. And this is his attempt to just try and save face, right? Just go down with dignity in a way. Trump himself tweeted Wednesday. I'll read Trump's quote. The reason Flake and Corker dropped out of the Senate race is very simple. They had zero chance of being elected. Now act so hurt and wounded. So what do you make of that? Do you think that that was Flake's motivation here? That's Corker's motivation? Well, I think there's some key differences between the two of them. In terms of Flake, I think that writing that book and having that out there, the way that was received in Arizona, the way that was received by Republican activists, I don't know that he necessarily knew how much of a weight, how much of an anchor that was going to be on him, especially since he has a primary challenger who's running as this outsider Trumpian candidate. And so I think in the weeks since that book was released, he has slowly started to realize, and I think those close to him have started to realize that, wow, you know, if you're going to run in a pretty conservative state against a primary challenger who is directly calling you out for criticizing Trump, and you have this stuff out here and you want to keep talking about this stuff, it can be almost impossible. Corker is an interesting case because Corker was actually sort of an ally of Trump early on. This is somebody who Trump looked at uh, reportedly to be his secretary of state. But he thought he was too short. And he did make that (laughs) comment, and now he's labeled him little with two Ds, Bob Corker. But, you know, there's been more of an evolution there. And Corker, I don't think Republicans worried about as much in terms of his reelection because he hadn't been out there for a year slamming Trump. He had done it on occasions instances where he disagreed with the president. But he didn't have the same kind of reputation that Flake did as a, you know, never Trumper, so to speak, or whatever you want to, you know, however you want to label what he said about Trump. And so Corker, I think, generally was in a better political position. But you still had the possibility that as he spoke out more and more against the president, 
he might draw a primary challenger. That primary challenger might say, why are you not supporting Trump more strongly? So I think eventually Corker was probably going to face the same kind of problems that Flake faced in Arizona. Do you think that this is a strategic attempt by Trump to push out lawmakers and his own party who don't agree with him so that he can possibly get primary challengers in here who, who agree with him more. Do you think he's trying to do that? Well, I think it's a strategic attempt by Trump's allies, by people like Steve Bannon, by people who associate themselves with Bannon. I think the big question right now is whether Trump is willing to ally himself with those forces, because he's also hearing in his other ear from mainstream Republicans who are telling him, hey, you need to watch out here. If you start nominating some of these candidates and they beat our incumbents, they might lose in the general election. They might become the next Todd Akin or Richard Murdoch. And if our numbers dwindle enough, you could be facing the threat of impeachment or investigations or some other thing that could happen if Democrats control Congress. So I think Trump is kind of torn right now. On the one hand, he has said, look, I like Steve Bannon. I can sympathize with his anger. I can understand why he's supporting these outsider candidates. But on the other hand, we haven't seen him go full bore into supporting these outsider candidates. And I think he is, in the back of his mind, at least worried that maybe if he supports too many of them, he could be the one in the end that pays the biggest price of everybody. While Trump may be torn about supporting outsider candidates, he wouldn't be the first president to be involved in trying to replace incumbents in his own party with candidates that were more favorable to his agenda. Author and political historian Dr. Lawrence Jerdom takes us back nearly 80 years to learn about President Franklin Roosevelt's approach. Here's Lawrence. So when we look to history for precedent, in this case, President Franklin Roosevelt is a person where we can draw some historical comparison to in terms of what we're seeing now. FDR was a Democrat who wanted to see more conservative members of Congress leave. Why was this a goal of FDR's? Well, because ultimately the Roosevelt coalition was very complex. I mean, similar in a way to the way we see the Republican coalition today or the Trump coalition today. You had a number of different groups within the Roosevelt coalition. You had labor, you had folks who were uh, farmers, you had African-Americans, you had immigrants, you had the inner city bosses, and most importantly, you had the South. And the South was very conservative. They were conservative Democrats. And those folks were very, very concerned about what Roosevelt was doing in terms of expanding government. They didn't like that. So Roosevelt didn't like it when basically he believed he had a mandate. He had won very, very successfully in the election of 1936. He had won by more than 11 million votes. And he believed that the public gave him a mandate, which allowed him to do whatever he wanted to do. And he didn't like it when they were uh, when they were against that or they were preventing him from doing that, especially since they had run so enthusiastically on his coattails in the election of 1932. So he resented that a great deal. Well, let's talk a little bit about why these conservative Democrats were concerned when it came to FDR's approach to party leadership and, and to governing. What kinds of things were they opposed to that he was doing? Well, they were opposed primarily to the idea of packing the Supreme Court. They were also opposed to things like the National Industrial Recovery Act, which anything that allowed greater government, anything that centralized greater executive power within the office of the presidency, they were very, very much against. They didn't like the idea 
of essentially the government being able to reach their arm into the lives of individuals and, in a sense, try to control their day-to-day lives. And they resented uh, what Roosevelt was trying to do in that regard. So it was a combination of sort of policy-specific things that they resisted and also just this general fear that, that FDR might be overstepping his power in some places. Oh, exactly, exactly right. There was a lot of discussion, particularly when he wanted to expand the Supreme Court. There were calls that he was a dictator, that he was a Stalin-like figure. There was a lot of resentment uh, towards him. And Roosevelt, as I said, believed that he had a mandate. And when he kind of got overconfident or arrogant, things really didn't go his way. I mean, he was a, had a marvelous innate political sense to see which way the political tea leaves were blowing. And this was not a case where that uh, instinct served him particularly well. Right. So, so how did he try to ensure that these more conservative Democrats were not reelected? Well, he basically decided that he was going to use the power of the presidency, the power of his personality, that great charm, that great ebullience, that great joy that he had by essentially campaigning against these Democrats and supporting those that had chosen to run against these Southern Democrats in their respective primaries. So he decided to hop on his beautiful train that had a private railroad cars and took all the media with him and all his various advisors and decided to make a real party of it and drive through the South and subsequently get off at all the various states that were being contested and make strong presentations to the public why the incumbent was not the answer to making the country better. Yes, but just to be fair, it's not uncommon for a president to want to shape the agenda and the goals of his party. What about Roosevelt's approach here really stands out as possibly overstepping? Oh, well, I think just the idea of a president stepping into a local election and essentially dictating to the residents of that particular state how he believes they should vote is very much overstepping their bounds. So was FDR successful in trying to push out these these conservative Democrats? Oh, God, no. It was a, <laughs> it was a complete disaster. Uh, I think every single one of the incumbents who Roosevelt chose to challenge won, I believe, except there might have been one congressman that he was able to uh, push out. But this, this had large ramifications for the rest of Roosevelt's tenure, particularly domestically, because it really showed the Congress that despite someone with a great mandate that Roosevelt believed he had, many in his party said, well, you know what, there's nothing to fear. That phrase, nothing to fear, but fear itself, well, they probably thought, well, there's nothing to fear from FDR, and we can essentially, if we don't like what he's doing, we can just prevent any of these bills from going through, and that's what he did. There was no more of any sort of New Deal uh, legislation. The idea for health care essentially went right down the drain, and, and that was essentially the end of the New Deal. They really stopped the New Deal right in its tracks. What do you expect to see in comparison in the 2018 midterm elections? Do you think that Trump can learn from FDR's failure to actually successfully do that, to actually bring in the candidates he wanted? What do you think are the lessons that Trump can learn from, from FDR's past? Well, I think there are, there are a lot of lessons Trump can learn, one of which has to do with temperament, a number, another of, of which is to try to, to listen to the advisors that he has around him about trying to keep a a cool head. You know, as I said, Roosevelt had a marvelous political instinct when he was able to use his optimism and charm 
to sort of move the country towards the big issues of the day, you know, beginning in the late 30s when he began to slowly talk to the country about the potential of becoming involved in the war in Europe and uh, a number of other things. Roosevelt was was an intelligent fellow who, like President Trump, as well as all presidents, enjoyed that sense of, of drama. But Trump seems to be constantly getting into these skirmishes with members of Congress and other people. He's not thinking long term about how it's damaging the Republican Party. I don't necessarily know if Roosevelt thought long term potentially of of how his actions may have damaged his New Deal coalition and the Democratic Party, but then he was not someone who tended to get get into these skirmishes very often. It was a very, very rare thing for him to to do that. So let's go back, Sean, and talk a little bit about Steve Bannon more. Steve Bannon, former chief strategist at the White House, he leaves the White House, and now he seems to be leading this sort of nationalist charge to get all these primary challengers to Republican establishment incumbents. Why? What is what is Bannon trying to do? Well, uh, it's interesting. When you look at Number one, the influence he has had since he's left the White House. He's arguably had more influence since he left and is out there and kind of free to speak his mind and recruit these candidates. I think this is part of what started as a longer term vision for Steve Bannon, which is not just electing Donald Trump president and upending the Republican establishment, but electing 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 other members of Congress over time who emulate the same qualities that Donald Trump emulates, who are running on the same kind of nationalist platform that Donald Trump ran and won on. And I think he sees his mission, or at least he explains it right now, as pretty simple. He wants to unseat Mitch McConnell as the majority leader. And remember, Steve Bannon, you know, is a very combative, fiery strategist. During the campaign, he trained his fire on Hillary Clinton. Well, Hillary Clinton's not in the picture anymore. So who are you going to fight now? Democrats hold no power in Washington. It's the Republicans. It's the Republican establishment, the Republican leaders who have become the enemy of the Trump base. That's where they've turned their attention to. And they're using the same tactics that they used against the Democrats. Right. So does this have any negative consequences for Trump himself? Yeah, I think the biggest negative consequence is potentially, as we discussed, the fact that the Senate Republicans might nominate candidates who are not polished enough, who are not in the mainstream enough to win some of these races. And ultimately, that could mean that they just lose Senate seats next year and seats that are in Republican control go to Democratic control. And maybe, maybe the Republicans lose control of their majority in the Senate. Right. Because even somebody like Jeff Flake, many have made the point that he's still a Republican senator who would be voting for the next until 2019 for largely for Republican policies. It's not that he disagrees necessarily with Trump's policy approach, but he certainly disagrees with his personality, or he's made that that pretty clear. Do you expect to see a change in Flake's voting patterns in any way? I don't really. And it's interesting. You're right. If you go down the line and you look at all of the votes Jeff Flake took and you and you had never heard him speak and you had never heard him give a speech and you had no idea that he was so anti-Trump, you would never know it from the votes. Because as you said, in terms of the actual policies, he's pretty much in lockstep with Trump. He's pretty much in lockstep with where the party is. So I don't think that's going to change. I think he still is somebody who is going to vote mostly on policy fronts. And remember, his critique of Trump is not that the president offered, you know, policy generally. It's not that he offered, 
you know, the incorrect tax policy or health care policy. His critique is that Trump shouldn't be name calling and shouldn't be, you know, fanning the flames of fear in politics and picking these fights and being divisive and personal. That That's his critique. And so I don't think Flake's going to change it anyway. I think he'll continue to basically vote for the orthodox conservative bills that, that the leaders offer. Okay, so Flake called this moment a, a tipping point. Do you think we'll see more GOP lawmakers feel like they can speak out against Trump, and will they? Only the ones who do not have any designs on running for re-election or running for president someday. That's the real tipping point. The real tipping point comes when you see a Republican who's on the ballot next year or a Republican who maybe wants to run for president someday sharply criticize Trump. Jeff Flake is done with the Senate. Bob Corker is done with the Senate. You know, the Bushes have been critical of Trump. They're done with being president. And until you see somebody who is on the ballot in a conservative area next year who says something like what Bob Corker or what Jeff Flake says, there really is no tipping point in the party because I think it's it's been pretty clear that everybody who wants to keep their seat in Congress and is a Republican right now running in a conservative state, they're not willing to go anywhere near the terrain that Bob Corker and Jeff Flake are walking with their comments. But Flake was expected to run again, so it's possible we'll see people who were expected to run again step down and condemn the president in some way. Yeah, that's true. I think, you know, Bob Corker's retirement caught a lot of people by surprise. Jeff Flake's retirement caught some people by surprise. There's still several other Republican senators who are out there who Bannon is targeting who might also in the coming months say, you know what, this isn't worth it. I'm going to step down. And so we might see them start to join this course. The bigger question is long term. What does this mean? Are we seeing perhaps the beginning of some sort of third party movement that is populated by people like Jeff Flake and Bob Corker, people like John Kasich in Ohio? Is that really what the upshot of this is in future presidential elections? Are we going to see the Republican Party totally splinter in two? That's the interesting question. There's all sorts of directions where this could go that have far-reaching consequences beyond uh, what happens on the ballot next fall. Yeah, well, that's actually a great segue to our final question, or can he do that question this week? And that's, can Trump continue to publicly fight with members of his own party without losing Republican majorities in Congress in 2018? Well, that's the question that I think still remains unknown. Right now, I think Mitch McConnell would say the answer is no. He can't keep doing that. He can't do that. But I think Steve Bannon would say, yes, he can do that because they have very, very different visions of the kind of candidates who can win. And I think that there's a lot of Republicans who think if you keep pushing out the Bob Corkers and the Jeff Flakes of the world, you will lose your Senate majority. But there's a whole other part of the party that says that is the way to go. That's the way to build an even bigger majority. Yeah. Sean, thank you so much for coming on the show. Sure. Happy to be here, Allison. You guys can follow Sean Sullivan on Twitter at Wapo Sean. Or you can follow me, Allison Michaels, at Allison Mikes. As always, this has been another episode of Can He Do That? If you guys liked it, review it. Share it with your friends, share it with your family, share it with the guy you're sitting next to on the bus. Just go ahead and let people know you're listening and we'll keep bringing you new episodes every week. And if you want more Can He Do That, come see us live at the Warner Theater in Washington, D.C. on November 7th. That's Election Day, exactly one year after Donald Trump's historic win. I'll be joined by legendary reporter Bob Woodward, national political correspondent Karen Tumulty, and 2017 Pulitzer Prize winner David Farenthold. We'll take a look at all the moments from this year that had you asking, can he do that? Get your tickets now at livenation.com. 
Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the cooperative and accommodating Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks and logo art from Loren Boglio. If you like Can He Do That? You should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Constitutional, a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. Or try Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.